morning, we're going to finish up our series in the Sermon on the Mount. And you may be wondering, if you have a Bible, you turn to chapter 7 of Matthew, you may be wondering, like, seriously, we're still in this, because I could have sworn we were at the end of the Sermon on the Mount last week. Funny thing about that. A couple of years ago, I was, um, um, I was at a church, and we were preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, and the lead pastor said to me, I was not the lead pastor, he said, Ed, good news, you get to end the series. And I was like, whoa, that's a big deal, ending a series, that's so awesome. And he goes, yeah. And then I saw that he only gave me two verses. And I was like, what? This isn't even like in red letters. The red letters actually stop before this and then you get these two verses. And if you're interested in like the Bible or teaching the Bible, sometimes you look at stuff like that and go, yikes, this is gonna be tough. He's like, oh, it'll be easy, it'll be easy, you'll be fine. And then he spent the whole first week before that, the whole week before that basically summing up the whole series. You know, because he had all these things he wanted to say. And he just kept going, oh, but Ed will talk about that next week. And oh, I'm sure he'll get to that. And I'm sure you'll probably hear that again next week. And I was like, thanks a lot, man. But the funny thing about it was even with all of that, when I taught through this thing that, Jesus, that is said of Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, I realized how significant it is to actually stop and really look at these two verses. Because even though they're not part of the sermon itself, they tell us a lot about why the sermon mattered and how you apply the sermon to your life. So I think it's very appropriate to be end with this and that we look at it very closely. I'll put them up on the screen. It's just two verses. And this is what it says in Matthew 7, 28 through 29. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not and not as their scribes. Because it's so short, I'll read it again. (laughs) And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Now, this word authority being used here is literally translated, I'll put it up here for you, um, it's literally translated exousia, which is like where we get the word exercise or exercise authority, and it means the right to control or govern over someone. Uh, This is a form of authority that is associated with a role or with a position rather than just being a specific person. And what that means is you're given an office, and that office carries with it authority, and you're then allowed to govern over to control other people because of the authority that's been given to you. Um, Now, believe it or not, we don't do that well with the idea of authority. So we'll just start there this morning, okay? We probably like to think that we like authority, I don't know, but we don't for the most part. We're not big fans of it, it turns out. We see this since the beginning of God's relationship with us, and we see this all the way up till now. Now, authority supersedes a person to the office that that person holds. And that's one of the reasons why we don't like authority sometimes, is when someone's given it over us, or when they hold an office that has it, but we don't like them, or we don't think they should hold that office. I'm sure no one knows what that feels like, because over the last, over all the years that I've been a voting adult, I would say every time there's a different president, there's always a group of people that say, that's not my president, right? Um, And they say that because it's a way of saying, people can't force me to give them real authority over me if I don't agree with them, if I don't agree with the things that they stand for, if I don't like them for whatever reason, if I didn't vote for them. I didn't vote for them. They're not my president, right? And we've seen it go back and forth too. You've probably experienced not feeling that way, and then you've experienced feeling that way about even the person running our country is the president. But we don't like authority when it's assigned in this way because oftentimes we don't know that we like the person who has that position, that authority over us. 
Now, um, Scripture tells us pretty clearly, it sort of, it's, this is throughout Scripture, really, uh, it begins with creation with this, that God has authority over us, all of us, and over this earth, and He has authority that's rooted and grounded in one thing, which is the fact that He is the creator of us. He's the author. He made it, so it's His. He gets to decide how it goes, and He knows how it works. God's authority is tied to the fact that he is our author, our creator. Therefore, he is an owner. He is a ruler. God did not create us to be totally detached from us. He didn't create us and go, that's fine. Just do your own thing. Don't worry about me. I won't worry about you and everybody will be happy. He created us to be in a relationship with him, which means that he created us with this kind of a thing in mind, that he would have authority over us fully and completely. Here's how we feel about it, though. Uh, In America, for example... One of our most important governing documents as a country is the Constitution. And if you are a part of this country, uh, and if you are involved in leadership in this country, you have to promise that you're going to uphold that thing. You say, that's what we've all decided we want to operate by. And so in order for someone to be in leadership over us in our country, they need to say, I'm going to abide by the Constitution. And when we get people in trouble for things, we say, you're breaking the Constitution. That's not according to the Constitution. People spend lots of time and hours. There are scholars devoted to studying the Constitution to make sure that we're living and governing and acting in a way that is in accordance with this thing because that's what it is to be an American, right? And so when people say that they'll do that, then supposedly we'll say we give them authority. And the reason why we do that is because we go, and I'm just going to presume for a second, if you go, I like living here. I like this country. Maybe I like it because it gives me freedom and liberty and opportunity. And as a result, I can fulfill my destiny. I can be who I want to be. And so... It matters to me that people follow the Constitution. It matters to me that this government runs the way that it has up till now because I value the way that we do it. And I'm willing to give authority to the people who promise to do those things. Now, what if somebody, group of people came in from the outside, a hostile invading force? They came in, they took us over, they conquered us, and they were now in charge. We wouldn't give them the same kind of authority, would we? Even if they can forcibly take it, even though they can take control of our government and they can tell all of us, you have to live this way and you have to do these things, chances are that would not be welcome. And chances are, even if they said, you have to follow my rules, you have to live as I say or do what I say or be the way I say, that even if we don't have a choice because we know that they can force us to do it, we still wouldn't really give them authority over us. We wouldn't fully recognize that authority. Why? Because we don't believe that that's the kind of country that we want to live in. We say, I don't want to live in a country that's governed by people like that. I don't want to live in a place that's governed by an invading force that imposed their will upon us, the people. I say this for this reason, because although if you're a Christian, you'd probably like to believe that In your life, God is the recognized authority and he has total control and you know that you thrive in that kind of an environment. I think that many of us, if we're honest or if we truly know our hearts, we actually see God more like an invading force that has come in and said, listen, if you don't do it, lightning bolts are going to happen, you know? Uh, and so, okay, fine. He, I'm a little afraid. I'm a little worried, or at least I know the rules and I know how things ought to be. And I'll go to church and I'll sing and we'll do the Bible thing and we'll talk about Jesus. And yeah, I want to go to heaven, but am I really going to give him, am I going to give him authority over me, believing that I can somehow thrive in that situation? And 
for many, I think probably for most, and Jesus says that in the Sermon on the Mount even, that there will be people who say, Lord, Lord, but don't really mean it because they don't really actually view God as that kind of an authority. Jesus tells us, the Bible tells us that God made you, he knows you. This is why scripture is clear again and again and again that the authority of God comes above all else from his authorship of us because that means that what he calls us to is actually what we're meant to be called to, right? The way he tells us to live is actually how we're intended to live and it doesn't feel that way oftentimes. He is the source. His rules and his teachings are life. If you break them, they will break you. If you fall outside of them, that means death, even if it doesn't, like I said, always feel that way. A good example of this is uh, spoken by Paul um, in Romans 9, where he says this, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? He says, listen, if you really believe that God is a creator, that he's made you, then who are you to say to him how things ought to be specifically with you in your life? That's like a pot saying, it's good, I got it, I'll make myself on this wheel or something. It's about that ridiculous. God has all authority because he created everything. And he then gives out authority as he sees fit, as he sees appropriate. Scripture tells us that too. It says, you know, submit to governing authorities for God's appointment. Uh, these are these institutions like family, like marriage, like, like even things that the Bible acknowledges like in government. There are slaves and masters. There are employers and employees. And in all those situations, there is a sense in which it is communicated in Scripture that God had the authority and he said, I'm going to allow that person to have authority. I'm going to allow that person to have authority. And sometimes it drives us crazy, right? That it's set up that way. And he doesn't do it that way because some people are better than other people. And that's one of the things that many people don't understand about what the Bible calls us to in roles and relationships and, and authority structures and things like that is that he's never saying the better person, you're a better person if you're in a position of authority or leadership versus another person. In fact, he says those in authority ought to know that they're not any better, right? How do we know that? Because Jesus has been given authority by God, but how did he live and how did he see himself? He lived like a servant. He saw himself as being very humble, like a servant. He lived as a very humble person. So God gives authority out. It's his. He gets to dole it out however he sees fit. And scripture makes it really clear, especially in the gospels, that he has given a tremendous amount of authority to Jesus himself. And here's an example of what that looked like. This is in Luke 7, which is after the Luke account, really, of the Sermon on the Mount. And so we read this. After he had finished all, the say all of his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. 
When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. Turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. So in this example, this man basically says, hey, I get how it works. Your authority is from God. You can give your authority to other people. Jesus, you don't even need to physically be here for this guy to be, be healed. And what does Jesus say to that? He says, you get it more than anybody else I've seen in Israel. Saying, you get how this works, that the Father has given me authority, and I bring that myself. And who's the guy that gets it? A soldier, right? A, a, a guy, a centurion. Of course he gets it because he understands how authority structures work in his world. And he recognizes, I can send my servants out. I don't have to go myself personally. And sure enough, the man is healed. God gives authority to Jesus. And he gives him authority to do a number of things. Jesus has the authority to judge, to forgive sins, and to speak on God's behalf. He has the authority over weather. He can dictate weather. He has authority over nature. He has all authority on heaven and earth. The Bible says that, which means he decides who gets in and who doesn't. It's his sacrifice to get you in the door, and as he explains, there are many people who will simply not get in. He has authority over even death itself. He can render death ineffective, as he does. So Jesus teaches all this stuff in the Sermon on the Mount, and at the end of it, here is what it says. It says, when Jesus finished, they were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. So these are a lot of different kinds of people, but mostly Jewish people. And they recognize that he has a kind of authority in his teaching that the scribes and the Pharisees didn't have. These were the ones that typically taught the law. So there was something about the way that he communicated things in the Sermon on the Mount. Something about the way he was that struck them in a very big way. And that's what made them stop and say, he has this significant kind of authority. And here's what it was. There's a couple things about his teaching that we see as we look back at the Servant on the Mount that show us the kind of authority that Jesus had. The first one is this, is that his teaching, first and foremost, always reflected God's word. Jesus' teaching, as he said again and again and again, you have heard it was said. So this is how you think it is. This is what your scribes have taught you. This is what the Pharisees have told you. But instead, I tell you, and he goes on to then teach them things that are entirely consistent with the Bible, even though they seem radically different from what they've heard and what they've been taught. And as the teachers of the law challenge him and as people try to poke holes in what he says, as we've looked through this series in the Sermon on the Mount and we've said, is this the same as the Old Testament? Is this the same? Is this what God said? We've seen again and again and again that all Jesus did was he removed all the things that got in the way of God's word that people had constructed and he was preaching from a place of saying, authority comes from God's word first and foremost in a message, in a teaching. His authority was evident because of his absolute commitment to the authority of Scripture. This is something that was said by rabbis in the first century in Jewish culture. They said, those who deny that the law is from heaven have no part in the world to come. They said, even if one says that the law is from God with the exception of this or that verse, which Moses, not God, spoke from his own mouth, then, that, then there applies to him the judgment. He has despised the word of the Lord. He has shown the irreverence which merits the destruction of the soul. So what they're saying there is they're saying, oh yeah, there's some teachers who actually say, oh, well, Moses said that, and that's not from God. That's just of a certain time and a certain group of people in a certain place, right? 
And, and the rabbis were very strict about God's word. And they said, no, if it's in there, if it's in the Old Testament, then we're going to treat it as that is God's word. And if people don't, then destruction is what will befall them. Um, at the beginning of their gatherings, they took the scrolls of, of, of God's word from the ark and they would pass it around as people could just acknowledge and show reverence and respect for God's word itself. So God's word was respected by the Jewish people. It was just being mistranslated again and again and again for various reasons by these scribes. Now, there are lots of things that get in the way of God's word that cause us to do that. There is our hearts because we just encounter God's word and we go, I really don't want it to say that. And if you get enough people together who encounter God's word and say, I really don't want it to say that, then it's easy for all of us to go, yeah, let's just agree it probably doesn't say that. Or maybe we're just misunderstanding what it's saying. Or maybe we'll just focus more on this other part of it that it's talking about, right? The other thing is tradition. And this was a big issue for, for the Jewish people. Traditions, these things that they had done, this way that they had lived and worshipped and acted and served, they had built upon one another so much that the traditions themselves became more important than adherence to God's word as it was given. And so Jesus, again, is coming in and saying, no, 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 no. You're so upset right now because I'm calling out your traditions. I'm not saying anything about the word of God other than that it's true. And people did get upset and they did get offended, but that's what needed to happen as Jesus comes. Or even just culture. When you get enough people together that we begin to live a certain way, and when God's word doesn't reflect our culture, but it actually directly challenges it, that's very hard for us to grasp and to swallow. It's also very scary for us to bring God's word to a culture that doesn't seem open to it when it, when it challenges core aspects of that culture. I mean, if nothing else, we live in a culture, we're all a part of a culture that says that my individual identity and the fulfillment of my destiny as a person is the prime importance of my existence. And God's word says, no, it's not. And so when you bring that to the culture, which again, includes us, and that's where we feel the tension in our hearts, these things do get in the way. And Jesus was able to teach on the authority of God's word again and again and again. If you came into the synagogue, the word was respected, but for some reason it wasn't being preached. He was confidently and unashamedly spoke with the same authority as Scripture, too. So when Jesus spoke, he spoke with confidence and authority that what he was saying was biblical, it was Scripture. That's the first reason why Jesus has authority. It wasn't because he was a good teacher or a good preacher. It wasn't because people loved him and they liked him. It was because he preached God's word, and that gives him authority. The second thing that we see in Jesus' teaching is that it reflects reality. There's an aspect of Jesus' teaching that you look at, and when you look at it and apply it to your own life or to the world around you, you go, you know what? This actually is the way things are. And sometimes it really blows your mind. His teaching has authority because it is clearly good and right and true. His ability to interpret God's law and he doesn't leave room for disagreement in any other gospel. He speaks of these things with the sense that there isn't really room for any other way to live that could lead to life. There's either this that I'm telling you about God's kingdom and how he intended for us to be, or there is death. That's it. And this is hard for us because man over time has continually overreached and overestimated our own ability to really know what's going on around us. We continue again and again and again to think, we got it now. We know everything now. Or at least we know the most important things now. And then to come to find that maybe we didn't and that we were wrong. But now we know them and now we've learned them. 
And as this is a pattern in man, really, in the knowledge of man. Uh, Now, that's not to say that the things that we learn, the things that we study, the things that we build our world upon oftentimes, that we have to research and understand and learn historically over time, are not valuable and true and important. It's not that I'm not even saying they're not true. But our tendency is to overestimate how much we really know and to think that we now know everything. We now know the way things really ought to be and the way that they are. And so Jesus comes and he teaches something different. And what he says is, no, that's not the way that things are. This is the way that things are. And that it's true that it does reflect reality. God is truth. He created us all. He knows better. He knows us better than we could ever know ourselves. And because of this, his word is most clear and true when we understand ourselves. This is why as we've talked through the Sermon on the Mount again and again and again, we keep going back to know your own heart. Look within yourself and understand where you're coming from. Why? Because that is when you will see the truth of what is in the Sermon on the Mount. A lot of times we read things and we look at things in Jesus' teaching and we go, I don't know that that's really the way it is. And that's simply because we're not truly willing to be honest about what's going on around us or what's going on within us. But Scripture tells us God is the author. He is the creator of us, which means that he really is telling us things that bring life and are important and good for us to hear. This is essentially the, uh, isn't this really better anyways aspect of Jesus' teaching? This is where Jesus teaches something and you look at it and you go, isn't this really better anyways? If I lived this way, if I did this thing, if I believed this thing really to the extent that he's talking about, which sounds kind of crazy, honestly, wouldn't it actually be better? Well, yeah, sure. I just don't know if that could happen. But the danger that we often fall into is that we won't accept Jesus' teaching until it seems like it's better. So we go, until I see how that's better than what I'm doing now, how that's maybe truer than the way I'm living right now, then I'm not actually going to try to conform my life around it. And what happens when we do that is all of the most important things that Jesus can teach us about our world and about our life and about ourselves, we fail to see because we're not ready to see them because it involves conforming ourselves around those things rather than the fact that they just show us something that we already like and that we're already good at. So we can't always have to say, and, and, and how many of us have been prone to do this, right? To say, uh, oh, I love this thing in Scripture. I love this thing in the Sermon on the Mount. I love when Jesus talks about this. This has always been something I've enjoyed, always something that's resonated with me, always something that I've taken so much encouragement from. This has always been something I've wanted to build my life upon. Great. Those probably aren't the things you need to focus super hard on the Sermon on the Mount right now. It's all that other stuff that you're like, I'll get to that stuff later. But I'm having a hard time seeing how that stuff really fits and how it works. And, and really, maybe God's not called me to live that way or something. I don't know. We're probably just misunderstanding it. We're probably, you know, we'll come to see at some point that it's different than what Jesus says here. But like an author, God knows his worksmanship well. He knows how we work, how we are intended to work our hearts, our tendencies, and he knows this world and universe he created. Now, the last thing that we see in Jesus' teaching that shows his authority is this, that Jesus' teaching reflects the Father's love for us. That the way in which Jesus lived and ministered and taught showed people undeniably that God loved them deeply, personally, and that that was the basis on which people would approach him. Knowing that although he's their author and creator, he also happens to be a good and loving God who wants a relationship with them. 
And we see that the reason given by why we ought to do so much is simply the love of God. Because he loves you. Because he's your father and he loves you. Jesus loved the father, the father loves him. We love God because God loves us. And this ought to mean something to you. And it might not mean a lot to you. You might be like, yeah, that's fine. There's other reasons I would follow God. I'm not a super loving, lovey, lovey person, so that's fine. We'll move on, right? This ought to mean a lot to you. God doesn't just like, you know, put you in the sleeper hold and say like, come on, come on, come on, just tap it out. Come on, here we go. Come on, there you go. You got, okay, you're good now, right? And then we just give in and we go, okay, fine. All right, fine, fine, fine. I don't want that to happen again, okay? That God doesn't actually force us to do these things out of fear and compliance to him because we're afraid of the God of the universe like creating a black hole in the middle of our planet or something. He, we, he does what he does for us out of love and he comes to us with love. Now there are times when God allows us to go through things and God himself like brings things in our lives that are really painful and really difficult but I promise you he's still being very gentle with you. I promise you that it still could be so much more and it still could be so much harder based off nothing else, just what we deserve as people who've wandered away from him. But he does those things. He allows those things. Why? Because he loves us. We see this in Jesus' ministry. Every one of these teachings that Jesus gives is coming from a place of love. It's telling us about a gracious, loving God. It's giving to a crowd who has experienced God's love in very personal ways. Before this sermon, it says that Jesus went around healing every sickness and disease amongst the people. He preached the gospel in the synagogue, but outside the synagogue, he was simply, he was doing miracles. And the miracles he was doing were not like, guys, check this out, I'm gonna make this tree explode. It's gonna be insane. And it wasn't like, okay, this camel is gonna talk, you're gonna love what he says, right? And it isn't even, hey guys, you remember the thing with the rocks and the water and then the fire came down? I'm gonna do that, okay, just to show you guys that, I, that I'm, I'm into the word and I can, I'm the same kind of, you know, like it's the same power, same God. Nope, doesn't do those things. What does Jesus do to show signs and wonders? What does he do that is miraculous? He does things that are totally unnecessary in the sense that he could have done none of them and still gone about his ministry. He does things that are personal and that are loving and that are for people. He says, I'm going to heal you. He says, I'm going to comfort you. I'm going to care about you. I'm going to bring the gospel to you. And what it communicated to those people is that God loves them. These were personal and they were loving. His teaching on things that are personal his teaching is on things that are personal that reflect God's desire to be in a relationship with us. He says to his children in the Sermon on he says, when you pray, you are praying to my Father in heaven. That the basis of your prayer is knowing that you're coming to a Father who loves you. And he says, when you pray also, ask with the confidence of knowing that he loves you. And what he ultimately allows and what he ultimately gives you is out of a love for you. He says, just know this about prayer. Just know that he loves you and that he's taking care of you. Just know that as you come to him. He says, I love you, you're my child, I want you to come to me. It's the basis of what we read about in prayer. When you worry, know that he's got you, that he will give you whatever you really need and that a lot of the stuff you're worrying about is probably not stuff that is that as important as you have made it out to be in your life. That you are the light to the world. 
that it isn't even just about you, but that he loves you and he loves others and he wants you to go just as much as he wants you to come and he wants you to bring the light to other people, the gospel to other people because he loves them. And it's about more of us than even just us. He says, love your brother. Don't even be angry with your brother. Don't even be angry with your brother. Physical brother, uh, you know, relate, like friend brother, fellow Christian brother, whatever. He's like, love your brother. Don't even be angry with them in your heart. That is motivated by love for his children, wanting us to really live that way. He says, I'd rather you lose an eye or a hand than to be cast into hell. And if you're a parent, you might know what it's like to actually want something painful for your child if you know that it saves them from destruction and if it saves them from death down the road. He says that out of love for his children, wanting to protect us. He says, don't retaliate, don't lash out. Love even your enemy. This is real love. Love your enemy? Yeah, because that's what this is about. You don't get to have the good people and the bad people in your life. You are to love all the same. He says, I want you to give to those in need simply for the sake of them receiving it and being helped and so that you know that I see it. Now this is, I think, honestly, this is one of the harder things that he talks about in the Sermon on the Mount because he goes to such extremes to make the case that we are to not even let our left hand know what our right hand is doing when we help. Why? But if I help and no one knows I helped, and he says, not your left hand, your right hand, you know what that means? That means I'm not even supposed to know how much I helped. It means I don't get to keep track of it. It means I don't live my life any differently tomorrow because I helped someone today. Like, I did it. It's fine. It's good. I keep score. Now I'm fine tomorrow. I don't have to do anything nice for anyone tomorrow. He's like, you care for others. You help others. You give to those who are in need in a way that shows that I just am doing so out of love for them and out of love for God, and that's it which is crazy. That's not why people help each other. Not most of the time in this world. He says, lay up your treasures in heaven. Don't invest in the things of this world. Why? Because he's like, those things are not nearly as good as your treasures in heaven. And he says, you will by nature hate one and love the other. You won't get to do both. And I love you. And I want you to actually pursue the right things. I want you to actually care about and invest in and build up treasures in the right things rather than the wrong things. And it's out of love that I say this to you. And even at the end, he says over these last couple of weeks we've looked at, don't make the mistake. Don't make the mistake of getting on the wrong road, of not building your house upon the firm bedrock foundation. He says, even though it's painful and difficult, be on the narrow road and know that the pain doesn't mean that God isn't there and doesn't love you and you're not doing the right thing. He says, even though it takes extra work and no one around you is probably doing it, dig through the sand and get down to the bedrock and build your house. He says these things, almost pleading with his hearers out of a desire, out of a love for them and a care for them. Jesus' teaching made God less distant for people. It made him less impersonal. It made him less scary for people who were so used to seeing God in that way. And the fact of the matter is, the scribes and the Pharisees were not known for being loving people. They were not known for bringing God's word with love. They were just known for bringing his word, usually with weight and burden. I think that um, a lot of, I think a lot of women who are married would be surprised to know how much 
it means to your husband that you love him and you are still around. I was doing a, a guy's group a few years ago, and I asked like a room full of 40 guys, what are you most grateful for? And this was just kind of like an icebreaker thing. And the majority of them said in some form or another, I'm honestly just happy that my wife loves me and that she puts up with me. Like they could have said anything and that's what they said. And this was not from a group of like super emotional, touchy-feely, warm and fuzzy kinds of guys who love talking about marriage and love and all that stuff. This was, I was expecting totally different answers and I had this whole thing written based off of what I thought they would say and then they didn't say it and I didn't know what to talk about. Because they just were like, honestly, seriously, like my wife loves me and she is still there, which amazes me um, and, uh, and it's incredible. Now I, now I know that this goes both ways too. I know that women, you both feel the same, you also feel the same way, but even for men who are often characterized as not being that interested in love in a relationship, but maybe wanting other things like respect, right? We'll just say that one, which I think in often ways describes the way that we receive love from one another. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Even that group says that this person loves me. And why does that matter so much to us? Why does it matter so much that this person loves us? Here's why, because they know us because they know you probably better than anyone and they have walked through life with you. And so to know someone that well, to know someone, all the ins and all the outs, all the warts, all the, all the shortcomings, all the stuff that comes out eventually, to know all of that about them and to say, I still love you and I will still be here with you is a tremendous thing for us to know. It is everything for us to know that. I was talking to my dad um, a few years ago. My parents got remarried after being divorced for 13 years to each other. They were divorced 13 years, then they got married again to each other. And I was talking to my dad on the day of their wedding. And I was like, you know, what changed? And he said, uh, you know, I've spent the last couple of years of my life around a lot of selfish people. I don't think he was talking about me. I think he was talking about other people. He said, I spent a lot of time last you know, a few years of my life, surrounded by a lot of people who are just selfish. And I start thinking that's just how everyone is. And, and the more that I've been around your mom recently, the more I've remembered and I've, I've seen once again how truly selfless of a person she is and how much I didn't appreciate that and didn't see that about her for so long. And, and you want to talk about really knowing each other. These people were exes, okay? Uh, they, they were apart for so long and lived in this world mentally for so long of that person's kind of my enemy. And then eventually get to this point where they say, no, even though I know so much about them and have been through so many of these ups and downs about them, and even a marriage that has ultimately failed after so many years choosing to be with that person and how significant that kind of a thing is. It is a really big deal that God loves us because he really does know everything about us. Everything going on in your heart. He knows all the stuff you've done. He knows all the stuff you think. He knows all the stuff that you're lying about, that you're putting on false pretenses about with other people. He knows all the ways you're a fraud and everything else. He knows all the fears that you have. And yet he really does, really does love you. And Jesus communicated that to people again and again and again, that God loves you. And his teaching reiterated that to people again and again and again. And it meant so much to them. So when we confront this kind of authority, there are two ways that we can respond to it. They're kind of obvious. The first one is this. We embrace it. We're drawn to it. The first is that we encounter true authority and we say, I want that in my life. 
Now, believe it or not, I don't think a lot of us tend to do this. I think a lot of us are like, uh, yeah, it doesn't happen a lot. Uh, you, in fact, a lot of times, because of the nature of our hearts and what sin, our desire for independence and freedom from God does, I think most of the time that people are drawn to authority in this way, like extreme authority to tell them how to live their life and what to do, it's often coming from an unhealthy place. Like you, like you think about like people who join cults and they basically are like, can you please just dictate every single thing about my life? Because in some way I find security and I find affirmation and comfort in that kind of authority in my life. You've all, obvi- you've all probably experienced in, in some form or another when you either graduated college or high school or found yourself at a point in life when everything was structured and set up for you and then you get to a point where you're like, now what? Now what am I supposed to do? It is terrifying for a lot of us because you go, summers were so great when I knew I just went back to school in the fall and somebody was gonna tell me what to do and, they were, and I was gonna know that I'm working towards something and it's good that I'm doing this and then you get out of all that and you go, there's nothing telling me how to live, how to, what to do, what, what's right, what's wrong, whether I'm doing a good job or not, whether I'm doing well in life or not. And that's very overwhelming for a lot of us because, um, because in a sense, like we, we are longing for some kind of a purpose or some kind of a direction or things to do. So while we can and should want to be drawn to it, while we should see what Jesus says to us in the Sermon on the Mount and say, I see the authority he has, I, says that he speak, I see that he speaks truth and life, I want that thing. The honest truth is very few of us are really drawn to it and say, I want to actually let God's word shape my life. Not, I want to let my life shape God's word. So for most of us, we are repelled by it. And when we're repelled by it, there's a couple things we do. One, we just ignore it. That's what most people did with Jesus. There were big crowds, there were lots of people, there were plenty of people to feed, you know. But eventually, many of those people, the majority of those people, they just simply weren't there anymore. They just simply, they heard him, they saw what he said, they saw what he did, but they could tell that there was authority, they could tell what he was calling a lot of them to, and they were just like, "Ah, maybe later, not interested. And they went home. A lot of us ignore it. A lot of us fight against it. This is what a lot of the Pharisees and religious leaders did. And as much as you want to say those guys were bad, like they were the ones going back to Jesus again and again, reconciling what he said with the way they knew to live and what they, what they believed. I think regardless, there are so many ways in which we encounter things in the Sermon on the Mount or in God's word, and we just, we hit up against those things and then we're not quite sure to do in that situation. And it's honestly because we just don't really know how to give God real authority over our lives. How to let go and to say, you can be in charge. I don't need to be in charge anymore because your way leads to life and my way leads to death. If I were to say from the pulpit here in a sermon, okay, let's just hypothetically here. If I'm up here and preaching, I'm talking out of God's word and I were to say to all of you, God didn't create the world in six days. How many of you would be upset by that? Raise your hand. Okay. And, and if I was like, what are, you, what are you talking about? Like, have you been around? Have you, have you talked to people? Like, like, like people don't believe that. that that's, like, that's like something people believed before. And look, things seem a lot older than that. And it doesn't make, like, how do you reconcile with that and everything like that? You would probably say, Um, because you're upset, you raised your hand, you're upset, you would probably say, because God's word says that. 
right? Because God's word tells us that he created this earth in six days. And God's word has authority. If I were to say to you, preaching out of the Bible, it's a Christmas series, and we get to the birth of Jesus, and I say, so Jesus wasn't really born of a virgin or anything like that. How many of you would be upset by that? Okay, I was kind of expecting the hands to be like waving in anger and stuff, but yeah, yeah. (laughs) And you'd be upset by that. And if I said, I don't know if you know how ba- where babies come from, I don't know if you know how this stuff works, but, but that's not, that, no, I'm like, uh, you know, that's just a thing that people said at the time to give validity, you know, whatever it was that he said. You know, we're in the minority if we believe that thing. You would say, I'm upset with you, Pastor Ed, who's preaching this stuff. Why? Because God's word says that about Jesus and God's word has authority. And guess what your job is? buddy. It's to stand up there and to say what God's word says because it has authority. And if I said, okay, you know that like there wasn't really a flood, right? That the whole world, people are going, Ed, just stop, just stop, right? The whole world uh, like flooded. That, that there, do you, you know that God didn't really part. I mean, have any of you seen an ocean part right in the middle and walked right through with some chariots? Have any of you done that kind of a thing? No, people don't. That's something that people said. That's stories that people told. That's things people used to explain away other things. How many of you would be upset if I said that? Yes, there we go. They're waving the hands now, right? And if I said, come on, guys, seriously, right? That's not, how can you, you would say, because that's what God's word says and because God's word has authority. Now, if I were to say to you out of the Sermon on the Mount, okay, Jesus said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. But we all know that that's not possible, right? In fact, we all know that that sounds like a very extreme way to talk about how we help and serve other people. So really, that's not what Jesus was really saying. In fact, um, yes, we ought to all really think about that. I would encourage you to go home and think about it and reflect upon it, maybe pray about it, maybe journal about it, maybe look up the Greek on that thing or whatever, you know, Um, and just really think about that in your own life, right? How many would say, I'm upset. How can you call yourself a Christian and not believe wholeheartedly that Jesus calls us to only give and help others in secret. And if I came to you and I said, if you're offering your gift at the altar, taking communion, doing something like that, and you know that your brother or sister has something against you, you really do have to just leave. Guys, we gotta just stop what you're doing, go find that person, and whatever it takes, try to reconcile things with them, right? All the time, every time, 100% of the time, and you're like, and, and I say, guys, we, we know that's not really realistic, right? I mean, what would that even look like? How, how, how many people have problems with you probably, you know? Man, that would mean you'd have to really look at yourself and think about like, who's really upset with me? Not just who am I upset at, which is what we're really good at knowing when we bring things to the altar, right? Would anybody get upset at that? Come up afterwards and say, Pastor Ed, You can't call yourself a Christian and ignore what Jesus is saying here. If I said, listen, guys, Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, but we all know, okay, that he doesn't really expect us to do that, okay? We know we can barely love the people that we like. We can barely love our friends, okay? We barely have time to love our own families, right? And pray for the people that persecute you. 
Oh, maybe I'll think about that at some point, right? No, guys, Jesus wasn't really saying that. That's just nuts. Like, he, there's no way that anybody can really do that. Anybody can really live that way, right? So I'll explain it away, and I'll tell you how it's just some mistranslation or something that we've done that, you know, really there's this one guy in this one place that wrote this one book that said that you actually get to hate your enemies even more. And then we'll be like, cool. I don't think anybody would come up to me afterwards and say, how could you teach that? How could you? Because it's in the Bible, and the Bible has authority. If I said, Jesus is telling us to really honestly just get rid of our stuff. Stop storing it up. Let it go. Don't accumulate stuff that you don't need, but to instead store up treasures in heaven. He talks about it like it's life or death, like you're a slave serving a master. No, guys, that's not what Jesus says. Come on. I mean, seriously. Who in the world is ready to do that right now? To just let go of and give up everything that's extra beyond what you really minimally need. We will defend to the death orthodox theology. Do you know why? Because it doesn't cost us that much to defend it to the death. We will get upset and furious. We will make sure that people are teaching the right things and believing the right things and holding up the right things. Why? Because it's easy for us to get upset and furious about those things. Do you know what we won't get upset about? Do you know what we won't call people out on? Is the fact that we ignore the things that Jesus says oftentimes in the Sermon on the Mount because they require so much of us that's difficult. The Western church, as in like the Western part of the world, has almost completely abdicated the great commission that Jesus has given us. We have taken what it is to be a follower of Jesus. I give you this job, everybody. Here it is. I'm going to make it simple. It's the one command I'm going to give you now that I'm I'm resurrected and you're really paying attention. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to do these things I've commanded you. Go. Has the church in the Western world gone? We've gone to other parts of the world, but in our own places where we live? No, we've gotten incredibly good at coming and being here. We've reduced Christianity and the teachings of Jesus to just, it will make your life better, it will make your families better, it will make things better, come, we'll fix your problems, we'll offer you comfort, we'll do all these things for you. And we have completely ignored, most churches have completely ignored one of the prime things that Jesus calls us to do, the great commission that he calls us to do. And are we upset about that? Are we bothered that people are doing that? Not nearly as upset as we are about some other things, right? And I'm not saying that those other things aren't important or that we don't believe those other things. I'm saying that we get upset about one and not the other. And we wonder why Jesus might say to us one day, you didn't know me. You weren't following me. Just because of that stuff, it doesn't mean that you were. And then we wonder, why is my faith not that strong? Why are my kids not getting it? Why do I feel like I'm not experiencing God like people did in the Bible? Why do I feel like things aren't the way they used to be when I first was following Jesus or something like that? Why do I feel like our church isn't the way that maybe it once was, the way that I remember it? Why do I feel like I'm not seeing the power of this thing? Because the way that Jesus told you that you would experience him and grow in your faith and serve him and live for him, you're not doing You're trying to find a way to follow Jesus without following Jesus. If nothing else, as we leave the Sermon on the Mount, we are to look at it and say, am I willing to give Jesus authority over my life? 
Am I willing to allow my life to be shaped by him? And I will tell you that it is not about the doctrine and it is not about the theology that's gonna be so painful for you. It's gonna be the things that Jesus calls you to do that you gloss over and say, I'm sure it's not really what I'm supposed to be doing. That's an impossible way to live. I mean, how much of my life would have to change for me to do that? And that's how we know. Because Jesus calls us to die to ourselves. He calls us to give up our agendas and our lives for the sake of God and for his mission. I think the Sermon on the Mount is one of those things that just you carry with you your entire life. You go back to, you look at again and again and again. And hopefully you are somewhat convicted by because that is what it is to have authority over you in your life. But the question for us is this. If we hear Jesus' teaching and we don't see it as having authority, it means almost nothing to us. If it's just a teacher, just some good words. Oh, I always love it when we get to that part. I really enjoyed when we talked about that thing. I wish more people did that thing. Then we fail to see that Jesus has to have authority over our lives in order for any of it to matter. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for you. We are so thankful that you love us. God, as someone who's not particularly good at loving others, I still see the need that I have for you and your love. Father, you have pursued us, you have come to us, and everything that Jesus has taught us from the Sermon on the Mount has shown us that. It has shown us that you care for people, that you care for your people and your creation, and that you want us to care for each other and you want us to care for you. Father, I pray that above all else, as we spend some time in worship, as we spend some time in reflection, that you would really overwhelm us with a sense of your love, God. That you would bring some of us to our knees with a sense of how much you love us, knowing that you do truly know everything about us, God. And that we would find freedom in that, and that that would give us an overwhelming desire to want to turn every part of our lives over to you, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. God, there is no better way to say it than that, Father, that it is your very breath that fills up our lungs, God, that you are the life that is within us. Father, that we don't have life apart from you or without you, and that you don't impose upon us things to do. You call us to live as we were always intended to live, Father. God, you are such a good God, and we are overwhelmed by how how much you have done for us, your people, how much you have pursued us through all of the times that we've lost our way and all the ways that you have come again and again and again to say that you love us, God. Father, our prayer is that we would see your path, the narrow road, the one that is built, the house that is built upon the solid rock as a way of freedom and of life, rather than see it as a list of rules that we must follow because it's the right thing and we're afraid of what happens if we don't. Father, our prayer is that we would open your word, that we would look to the teachings of Jesus and that we would see life there that we wouldn't have to tell ourselves to see life there, that we wouldn't have to force ourselves to feel a certain way about it, but that we would really just look at it and see life and want to live it, Lord. God, thank you for everything you've done for us, Lord. It's in your name that we pray, amen. Amen, God bless you guys. Have a great week.